We're going to look at Titus chapter 2 in our time together this morning. So if you want to open your Bible, or if you have access to the Bible in your phone, you want to go to Titus chapter 2, we're going to be looking at verses 11 through 12. 11 and 12 connect with 13 and 14, and 13 and 14 are all about what those guys just saying. And so as we go through Holy Week this week, the message of that song tying in with Palm Sunday this morning and the idea of these verses we're looking at, hopefully all of this will fit together. What I want to do for you this morning is look at Titus 2, 11 through 12, and show you how that relates to Palm Sunday as we move into Holy Week. You might say, oh, that's cute. Owen wore green for Palm Sunday. No, I wish I did. I wore green because it's Master's Golf Sunday. So uh, this is the closest I'll ever get to a green jacket. So uh, I love the fact that it's Palm Sunday, and I'm going to show you how Titus 2 connects to that, but I wore green because it's Master's Sunday. Um, we're, moving into, we're moving into Holy Week, uh, beginning today with that celebration of Jesus coming into to Jerusalem as the king. This week, let me give you a couple of ways that you can be engaged in worship, that you can grow spiritually during this time of the year. Here's the first one. It comes as way of a challenge. I think one of the best things you could do this week is try, make a commitment to memorize Titus 2, 11 through 14. Those four verses, Titus 2, 11 through 14, if you think, you know what, I know this is a special week, every week matters for being a Christian, but this is a special time of year and I want to do something, memorize Titus 2, 11 through 14. Four verses, pick one verse a day, Monday through Thursday, and then Good Friday, Silent Saturday, Easter Sunday, spending those three days just reviewing those verses. So that would be the first thing I would put out there for you to do this week, is, is to look at Titus 2, 11 to 14. Try to put that in your heart and your mind. Thursday here at Emmaus, Maundy Thursday here at Emmaus, the building is going to be open from 7 a.m. to 8 p.m. We're going to have different stations set up here in the worship center it will take you somewhere between 20 and 30 minutes. You can stay as long as you would like. You can move as quickly as you need if you're here on lunch break or, or here after work and you need to get home, whatever the case is. But from 7 a.m. to 8 p.m., the worship center will be open and set up for you to walk through different stations designed to help us understand more about Holy Week, for us to look at our own hearts, to engage our minds in what it means to worship the Lord. It's designed to bring kids uh, there'll be things to touch, there'll be things to do, there'll be booklets that they'll be able to take around with them, so this is a family-friendly thing. It's a time of worship, but it's a time that you can come any time during the day, 7 a.m. to 8 p.m. So that happens on Thursday. Friday night, Good Friday service this year is going to be at Capitol Hill Baptist over on 134th Street. So if you want to come and be a part of a Good Friday service, we'll be over there at Capitol Hill. And then on Sunday morning, we have two worship services, 9 a.m. and 1045 and we've stuck the family egg hunt right in the middle. And so we're going to have fun. We're going to have donuts and coffee and eggs and all that good stuff. And then we're going to send the kids to Elevate during the 1045 service with, uh, with Miss Courtney. So uh, we'll see. We'll see how that works. But if, if the early service works better for your family at 9 and you want to come at 9 o'clock, do the egg hunts and then go to lunch with your family, you can do that. Or you can come to the egg hunts and then stick around for the worship service at 1045, whatever is, works best for your family. So that's our game plan. Now let's look at Titus 2. 
Let's dig into these verses and see what it teaches us about Palm Sunday and, and what it means to live fully for the Lord. I want us to read verses 11 through 14 all together here. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. This is the word of God. Next week, verses 13 and 14, today 11 and 12. I told you last week about our math teacher in high school and how we would continually ask her, why do we have to learn this? Why do we have to know this? Where is this ever going to benefit us in life? And how she would finally just tell us, you have to know this so you can pass the test and get out of my class and move on with your life, which is not a bad answer to, to that question. But at some point, we want to know the why behind the what. If somebody's telling us something to do, as parents and grandparents, we know sometimes we just say, do it because I told you. But sometimes we want to know the purpose. We want to say, what is behind this? Why am I asked to do this? Why am I asked to live this way? In Paul's letters, you find this all throughout the New Testament, but especially in Paul's letters, he will tell them to do something, but he'll also give the theology behind it. And usually, usually in Paul's letters, it's theology first, then do this. So it's theology and then command. Here, though, in Titus, he does it in reverse. Titus chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, were various commands, various ways that they were called to live. And then in 11 through 14, he gives the theology behind it. He gives the reasoning behind it. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, and you're uncertain about the whole idea of the Bible and the idea that God, there would be a God who would tell his people to do something, what I hope would be interesting to you this morning is to know that when you hear Christians talking about do X and don't do Y and live this way, I want you to see that one of the things the Bible does really well is it gives the why behind the what. It says, yes, you're called to live in this way. This is what a Christian life looks like, but it gives the theology, it gives the background. And so if you're here and pretty skeptical about the Bible, pretty skeptical about Christianity, what I think might be interesting this morning is to be able to peel back the curtain a little bit and see why we feel called to live a certain way, why life should look like Titus 2, 1 through 10, and you get the purpose of it. And one of the things you get here is you find that the purpose, the reason, the foundation for living a certain way is it's the word grace. We sang earlier about grace. Grace is a topic that comes up a lot in church. But if we're not careful, grace can feel like one of those churchy religious terms that we grew up with. Sounds good, we know it's important, but it's kind of hard to get our hands around. It's hard to understand what's going on there with that idea of grace. We grew up with singing Amazing Grace, we read books about grace, but what does grace look like? Well here, Titus 2, 11 through 12, we see grace. And on your notes, there's three things about grace. Grace appears, grace saves, and grace transforms. And so I hope that this morning you can get a better picture of grace as we tie these verses in with the idea of Palm Sunday. Let's go back to verse 11 and get started on this. Verse 11, 
following from those first 10 verses that said, here's what you should do, says four. The reason for those is the grace of God has appeared. The grace of God. So the reason you should do these things is the grace of God has appeared. Grace is at the very core of who God is. When you see the word grace in the New Testament, almost always you can insert the word gift. So kids, if you're seeing the word grace show up in your Bible, people talk to you about grace and you say, I know that's an important word, I have no idea what it means. Almost always you can put the word gift in place of the word grace and make sense of it. The only caution there is when we think gift, inevitably we think something you can touch, something you can hold, it's something that's given to us that's physical. Grace, though, is more of the idea of God's gift, but it's the giving of all that he is. It's the giving of his favor, it's the giving of his goodness, it's the fact that he has made himself known to us. So it, when you hear gift, don't just think about something you can touch, something you can hold, but it's God giving of himself to us. The idea of grace was all over the ancient world. In the ancient world, they would have what they called patrons or benefactors. Uh, these were, in a sense, investors before investing became 21st century style. These were investors. These were people who would give of themselves so that somebody else could do something, often do something for them or do something with their lives. And so people in the ancient world heard about grace outside of religious settings. We think of grace as a religious word. In the ancient world, the word grace was everywhere. It was just the idea of giving favor or giving something of yourself to someone else. So when these people heard that the grace of God has appeared, they would have had an idea of what that was about, but they wouldn't have known the fullness of what God meant when he made himself known. Because it says the grace of God has appeared. That word appeared is the word epiphany. Many of you have had an epiphany before in life. <laughs> it's like, oh yeah, the light bulb went on. The word epiphany means to give light into a situation. This word, Luke is generally the only other place in the New Testament that you find this word, so it gives some additional reasons to think that Luke was involved in these last letters of Paul. But Luke gives this word in Luke 178 when Zechariah is giving the prophecy about John the Baptist and how light will be spoken into a dark world will give light into a dark place. I probably told you this story before, but when I think of epiphany and I think of light, this is what always comes to mind. When our kids were younger, uh, not a lot younger, but just a couple of years ago, we were going through doing the every so often cleaning of the room where you know they'll collect this stuff that's really important to them, but we have another word for it. Uh, so uh, they would collect it, so we would collect it and we put it in the trash can and then we failed to take the trash can out uh, that night. And so one of our kids came walking into the room the next morning and said, Mom, Dad, the trash can is glowing. I'm like, oh my word, what, what do we do? And then it dawned on us, oh, we threw all that stuff in there. And one of the things we threw in there was a glow stick that apparently broke. Uh, so it caused the kitchen to have this glow as the glow, glow stick lit up the trash can, which then gave the kitchen a very, a very eerie glow. This is the idea of light breaking out into a dark place. And so when the grace of God appeared, it was the light coming in to a dark place. It was God making himself known. And this is where we get Palm Sunday starting to show up. In your Bible, Go to John chapter 12. 
So what we know from Titus 2 is that God makes himself known. He gives of himself. Grace appears. Grace is not hidden. Grace appears. And it happens in different ways throughout Scripture. But Palm Sunday, we see it in a special way. John chapter 12 is what we're going to be looking at for just a second this morning. Because what I want you to know is this idea of living out in public, of when God comes, he doesn't do his work behind closed doors. And we'll say why that matters here in a second. But this is John chapter 12, starting in verse 12, which would be a good place for me to find. John, John 12, 12. On the next day, the large crowd who had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him and began to shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. These things his disciples did not understand at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him and that they had done these things to him. So the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to testify about him. For this reason also the people went and met him because they had heard that he had performed this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are not doing any good. Look, the whole world has gone after him. If you read just before these verses, you find out that when it became clear that they were trying to arrest Jesus, that Jesus went into hiding a little bit. He went into private because the timing was not right yet. But when the timing was right, he came back into public. And he came into public view in such a way that all the people could see what he was doing. Even after these verses, it says that the Greeks, the, the Gentile people, began to come to him. Everybody was able to see what was going on. You say, Owen, you've repeated that ten times. Why do you keep making that point? Here's the point. Remember that in the book of Titus, one of the things that was happening is there was a group of false teachers who had this secret knowledge that they wanted people to gain access to, and often you had to pay to gain access to the secret knowledge. And so their idea of what was spiritual, their idea of what was religious, happened behind closed doors. And it was only for a special group of people who had access to the secret knowledge. And you find Paul saying Christianity does not work that way. When God does his work, he does it in full view so that everybody can see what's happening. So the grace of God has appeared is a complete shot at the religious, the false teachers who were doing all their work in secret behind closed doors. What does this say to us? This says to us in our life and in our church, we shouldn't have anything to hide. Christianity is not about hiding something behind closed doors and then presenting something else in public. It's saying, here I am and all my struggles and all my brokenness and here's what God's done in my life, and I'm going to put that on full view because we are called to live in public. doesn't mean necessarily the 
fish sticker on your car or the Christian t-shirt or any of that. We're going to find out in Titus 2 what this looks like. But what it does say to us is Christianity is public. It's not this is my life behind closed doors in private and then I live something else out in public. No, the grace of God has appeared. God has made himself known. And we see that most clearly on Palm Sunday where Jesus comes and says, here I am. What does it mean, though, that grace appears? Well, that's where we get to the second half of Titus 2.11. So go back in your phone, go back in your copy of the Bible to Titus chapter 2, verse 11, because grace appears, and then point two in your notes is grace saves. When God's grace shows up, God's grace brings salvation. Chapter 2, verse 11, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. Now this is a little bit of, of a confusing verse. This is one of those places it would be good to look at a couple of different translations to get an idea of what's happening in, in this verse. I want to try to explain it to you so we can have some clarification best, best I understand it. It's a, it's a little tricky. First, all men. I would Focus your attention on the word all, not the word men there. Uh, that's a translation pulling over the idea of male, but it's the general word for all people. Uh, the key word is all. That when God's salvation has come, it's come in the view of all people. Remember verses 1 through 10, or in Titus 2, 1 through 10, it's older men, older women, younger women, younger men, and slaves. So in their background, they've already been thinking about these groups of people, and what Paul is saying is when God's grace comes, salvation is available to all. There is no one, there's no group of people that stand outside the power of God's salvation. It doesn't mean, though, that all people are automatically saved. You could see this, and it says bringing salvation to all men, that means that all people are going to be saved. No, that's not what you find in the New Testament. What, what you do find is that salvation made available to all people. There's no group, there's no person that stands outside the power of that salvation. John 3.16, for God so loved the world, he gave. That idea of grace, that idea of gift, he gave his only son so that salvation would be possible. But probably the neatest way this shows up this morning is in Psalm 118. On Palm Sunday, when Jesus is riding the donkey into Jerusalem, or riding the colt into Jerusalem, what psalm are the people chanting? They're chanting Psalm 118. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, which is that word Hosanna. Save us, we pray, O Lord. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, I know this assumes that some of us grew up in, in kind of a church background, but how many of you grew up singing the psalm, this is the day that the Lord has made? This is the day. We're going to stop right there before I go any further. There's a reason I don't sing. Uh, so this is the day. You know, I had two brothers as well, and I was watching the, the brothers up here singing, and I was imagining what would happen if my brothers and I sang together on stage. Uh, we'll, we'll go on. Uh, this is the day the Lord has made. When we sing that song, this is the day the Lord has made, we're normally saying, this day right here, God made for us. It's a fresh day to live for him. That song, though, 
and Psalm 118 is not about this is a fresh day to live for the Lord. This is the day the Lord has made is the day of God's coming salvation. That's what the people were seeing about. They weren't seeing today's a fresh day to live for the Lord. They were seeing God's salvation is going to come to his people. And when Holy Week began to unfold on Palm Sunday all the way through Easter, Psalm 118 was coming true. This is the day the Lord has made was showing up. It was happening. It was the day of God's salvation, the day of God's grace coming. And so when God's grace appears, the result of that is that salvation comes. And salvation comes available to all people, but not automatically to all. Because if you read Psalm 118, you find that some people trip over the rock of salvation, and some people base their life on the rock of salvation. So when God's grace appears and salvation is possible, the question is, do we trip over that and say, I don't need that, that's not for me, that's just another religious option that people are looking for, or do I say, no, that's my only hope for life, and I'm gonna base everything I am on who Jesus is and what he's done for me. So God's grace appears, it comes to us to be lived in public, When we receive that, the result of that is salvation, free and given of God. But here's the most important part. Here's the game changer. It comes in verse 12. In verse 12, God's grace not only appears and saves, but God's grace transforms. And this is what I want everything to aim toward is verse 12. Instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly righteously and godly in the present age. So when God's grace comes and God's grace saves our life, when we're saved from our sins, it would be cheap grace. It would make light of God's gift. We said, thank you for that gift. Now I'll live however I want to. In the ancient world, when these patrons and these investors would give gifts to people they expected a response of gratitude. They didn't expect that those people would be able to do everything perfectly. They expected a response of gratitude. But usually, you know what happened in the ancient world? People would only invest in someone that they knew would come through. They would only invest in someone that they knew had everything together. What makes God's grace so amazing is that he invests in people who have been rebels against him. He invests in a dark place. He invests in people who don't have everything together. But as we experience his grace, that grace not only saves us, it transforms us. And so we are taken out of that darkness and we are brought into light and it changes everything about what our life is for. It's cheap grace to say, yeah, I'll take that salvation and then I'll do whatever I want to with my life. When Jesus calls people to himself, he bids them come and die. He says, come and take up your cross and follow me. He says that when you're baptized, then you'll be taught to do everything that I've commanded you to do. It's a life that's transformed when we really experience what God's grace is all about. Verse 12 says that we're instructed by grace. That word instructed might make you think primarily classroom type learning, but it's the word that was used in the ancient world for a person's entire life being formed Those of you who are are teachers, 
you hate the idea that your only job in teaching would be giving information to those students that are in your class. You don't teach to give information to the students in your class. You teach because you wanna see their lives shaped into men and women who are able to live to their fullest capability. You wanna see everything about their lives formed. And so instructing here is not, hey, sit in a class and take in this information. It's instructing in the sense that God's grace shapes every part of our lives. What does that look like? Well, he gives you two options, a negative, not two options, he gives you two sides of the coin, a negative and a positive. Paul does this all throughout his letters. We saw it last week, we'll see it next week, but there's a negative and a positive. The negative is that he instructs us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires. Ungodliness is in the singular, it means the totality, all about what it is to resist God. So the ungodliness, worldly desires are the specific ways that we would work out that ungodliness. So when God's grace begins to work in our life, when we realize that God has showed up, when we realize that God has saved us and that God wants to transform us, we deny, we reject ungodliness. We say, I'm not gonna have anything to do with that. In Christian history, the act of baptism has largely been an act of rejecting ungodliness, to say, I'm no longer going to live in that way. I have been made new, and now I'm committing to go in a new direction. So I deny ungodliness, and I deny worldly desires. All those things that would show up in my life that would show that I'm not living for the Lord. So I denied that. Then there's the positive side, that I would live main verb in this, in this sense, that I would live sensibly. Uh, that's the idea of self-control that we talked about uh, last week. I would live sensibly in regard to myself. I would live righteously with others, and I would live godly. You almost get this self, others, God. All aspects of my life, I would live in such a way that I honor the Lord, that I show that that grace has transformed me. And then kind of the key phrase, in this present age, in this present age, this present age is the age we live in when we say, come Lord Jesus. It's the age we live in right now before that final coming of Christ to make all things new. So in this present age, where darkness seems to reign, where there's brokenness all around us, where marriages fall apart, where families crumble, where situations like what happened today in Cairo happened where you have all these things going on that seem so against the things of the Lord. When you have all that happening, in this present age, grace is supposed to be lived out. Grace transforms our life. And here's the key point here. Not to escape this present age. This is the crazy part about it. When Jesus came into this world, he came into the heart of the world. He came into the depth of the darkness. He took on everything about this world, not so we could live lives trying to escape the world, but so that we could live fully for him in this present age, and so that God's grace in us would be given to others. So as God transforms my life, then I'm involved in transforming the world around me through God's power. So as I understand God's grace, my family members benefit from that. As I understand God's grace, my coworkers benefit from that. As I understand God's grace, my school benefits from that. God's grace works in me to save and to transform, and then he uses me to change the people around. The reason this is so important 
The reason this matters so much is we live in a part of the world where it's so easy to separate salvation from transformation. We live in a part of the world where a lot of people have had some sort of religious experience. They take on the term Christian, they identify in some way with Christ, but there are no signs of transformation happening in that person's life. And we're gonna talk about that particular subject next week in more detail because I think it's so important for where we are and the world that we live in. We're not called to be the judge for what that transformation looks like in someone's life, but what we are called is to look clearly at scripture and see when God's grace appears, God's grace saves, and God's grace transforms. What that looks like is gonna look different in different people's lives, it's gonna happen at different speeds, but it matters that we keep those things together. Students, I just can't stress how important this is that your identity with Christ is not just a salvation experience that you had one time and then you go on living your lives however you want to. There are hundreds of adults here today that would tell you the results of living in that way. But to know that God's grace that's appeared in your life that brings that salvation is there to transform you and not just to transform you but to transform those around you. And when that grace works in your life that it would impact those around you, that we'd be used by God to do those things. So what I want you to see this morning from these verses is when Jesus showed up on Palm Sunday, he showed up to show what it looks like for God's grace to appear. He showed up to show what it looks like for God's grace to save, and he showed up so we would know what transformation looked like. So we would know that that transformation only comes through his death and resurrection, but it impacts everything about our lives. We're gonna have a time here at the end of the service, just for you to pray. We're gonna have a song that we're gonna to sing together. If you wanna to sing that song as your time of response, whatever God is doing in your life, if you know in your heart that you have separated salvation and transformation, if you've taken God's grace as a cheap thing just to be written in a song or written on some sign in your house, this is a time of repentance. This is a time of turning back to the Lord, saying, Lord, this year in Holy Week, I want to know what it is to truly experience your transformation. Let me pray for us, and then we're gonna sing this song together. Father, I pray that by your spirit and by your word, you would help us in this moment to know more about your grace God, that you have shown us your gifts and your goodness you have given of yourself fully through sending your son Jesus. And Father, I pray that if there are people here this morning who are skeptical, who are uncertain, who are battling questions about faith and Christianity and belief in God, that we would see that it's not a religion of just do these things and everything will work out. It's the fact that you save us and then you transform us. Father, show us what that looks like. God, I pray that we would be a church that does both of those well, that we would proclaim that today is the day of salvation and that we would be able to show the world around us what it looks like for that transformation to take place. Father, during this time, God, work in our hearts. Help us to respond to you in faith and obedience. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.